Charlie Gladstone here and welcome to my Mavericks podcast. This is episode 16. Thank you very much indeed for joining me. Today's conversation is with the former Deputy Prime Minister of Britain and leader of the Liberal Democrats, Nick Clegg. I'm incredibly grateful to Nick for agreeing to speak to me. He is, in my opinion, a true maverick and, um, of course, has, has been through a huge amount in the last decade or so. I asked Nick if he'd do this conversation and he said that he doesn't normally do this sort of thing, but that he would for me, which was really nice of him. Anyway, I was invited down to his office in Southwark in London and um, I went down in mid-October and he shares an office there with a creative agency downstairs in a large building. As I walked in, there was a ping pong table and a moped part there, um, which seemed quite a far cry from 10 Downing Street where he was not many years ago. Anyway, we sat down in one of the rooms there and we had a wonderful conversation, I think. So here it is, with no further introduction in any way necessary, here is me talking to Nick Clegg. Starting as, as I suppose all things do, I was really struck by um, what you were talking about children and how you felt that sort of we were focusing all of our energy, emotional energy and, and money on further education and not focusing on two and three year old children. And that struck me as an absolutely brilliant thing. I haven't, why isn't that being said more often? I think it's said a lot by academics, to be fair enough, you know, to be fair, and to people who sort of make this their business. That, and of course, and the interesting thing is, it's also intuitively obvious to every parent, which is that you know what 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 you do to try and um, help in the kind of early wiring of, of a child's life, you realise as I certainly do as my kids are now in their sort of, the two oldest are sort of teenagers, you realise that what you've done in those early years is just immensely important in, in giving a, a child you know, the ability then to spread their wings later in life. And that, oddly enough, this is a crude sort of technocratic thing, but sort of interventions, if I can put it like that, later in life just become, it's just much less, it's much, it's, it's much less easy, isn't it? To, yes. To shape and help and assist and support someone once their characters and their strengths and weaknesses have been sort of you know, solidified in later life. So, and, all, and, and neurologists, I'm not a neurologist, but I think, I th- you know, where I have dipped into it, the way that the brain is wired, you have this extraordinary burst of neurological activity in the first few years of life. And then apparently it does happen, they think it happens again a bit <laughs> around the ages of 12, 13, 14. But in other words, get, get, getting, uh, wiring is quite a good way of putting it, get, get, getting that wiring right. Uh, providing the best possible environment for kids even before they start at school does seem to me to be the, the, the best long, one of the best long-term ways of um, making sure people get a fair crack I, at the whip. I think, we're, yeah, we're, th- there's no doubt for me that I can see that my children's character has been essentially fundamentally set by the time they're about seven or eight. Yeah. And that kind of what we do... You have do, many more children than I do. So yeah, well, you, t- you, twice you, as many. You have more laboratory but experiments. I think we, no, well, I, th- I think we do, because I think that our youngest is, is calmer and perhaps more confident than our eldest, yeah. because we were just more relaxed yeah. parents. But that's so, always the case, isn't it? Yeah, yeah so why is it that, that we're focusing so heavily, or all of the discussions are around further education, when actually the money, the money which is at the essence of it, should be going to... So, so the, certainly when I first came to politics, it's thankfully changed quite a lot, but we as a society just spent more money in the bit of a child's education, in other words, after they've left school, uh, subsidising 
generally, but not exclusively, subsidising kids who often come from above-average income families and not spending remotely as much money um, on low-income, uh, disadvantaged kids very early on in that, or even before they start school, when all the evidence shows that helps the most. And I think the reason for that is because, of course, toddlers don't have votes yes, and, and they don't have voices and they don't go on demos. And, and, and also, quite understandably, the, 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 you know, there's a strong link emotionally between you know, aspiration and, and having your kids go to university. That's, all traditional, that's a traditional mark of success aspiration it's much less diff- it's much less or rather it's much more difficult to prove that you're boosting aspiration by for instance helping as some one of the things I'm proudest of introducing in government is for all two-year-olds from two-year-old toddlers from the most disadvantaged families giving them a calm well-structured well-organized setting to spend 15 13 hours of their of their time you know every, every week the evidence is overwhelming that is a brilliant way of making sure that they are ready for school when they hang up their coats at the first day of primary school and that of course consequently gives them a better chance of going to university many years later but it's all very indirect it's a long-term investment and certainly in politics politics is such a myopic instant sort of give it me now give it me quickly sort of um, line of work making these big long-term investments which only have long-term indirect effects however powerful they are just doesn't generally appeal no, it never happens. well it just doesn't capture a headline whereas whereas a change to the repayment schedule for a, for a graduate who then goes on a demo on a Saturday afternoon it grabs the headlines instantly mm. but it you know I, but I do strongly feel I mean really very strongly that if we want to there's so much cant and forgive my French, much bollocks spoken about fairness and all the rest of it. And so many people who talk about fairness and then actually espouse um, policies that are, you know, actually rather regressive or not particularly radical at all. I mean, I don't want to get too particular about no. this, but, 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 you know, actually one of the most radical things you could do if you genuinely cared about fairness would be to shovel so much more money into helping kids, particularly from the most disadvantaged families, before they even go to school. It's just not very fashionable. It's no. not very sexy. I think, I mean, what's interesting about you, Nick, is that my sense has always been that you're more human than most politicians. <laughs> well, I think... Do you think, I mean, do you think that is the case? Or was that because you're in a minority position in the coalition that you were allowed to be more human? I think it'd be a bit unfair on politicians. I mean, there are some politicians who are just... Okay, they're public some, image to, then. They're public image. Can I just say something about public image? It's quite interesting. As a human being, you talk about human. One of the things that I learned too late, actually, is that... Um, particularly if you're in the firing line in politics. So people want, your, your, your opponents want to impose, quite understandably, that's what you do if you don't like someone. We do it in our own lives, you do it in politics. You impose a stereotype on them. Right? You know, that's what, you want to frame them as, uh, you want certain bad adjectives to be attached to them um, all the time. And, and I realised very quickly that um, there, is, uh, there is a very powerful, remorseless effect by which stereotypes about you in public almost develop a, common, a, common, a kind of cardboard cut-out caricature of you, which is completely different to what you know you are. And I remember early but on... that's the case with any celebrity. It is with any, but I, I, it's why I, in a sense, can't answer very easily the, 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 the kind of public uh, persona that I may or may not project, because I realised far too late, and I was far too sort of blasé about this. I remember at the beginning when, you know, the nutters at the Daily Mail and others sort of said, you know, he's a lying, thieving, amoral, you know, unethical monster. So, I mean, it just became, it was just such a ludicrous cardboard cutout caricature. And I didn't respond, because I thought, well, come on, it's so bleeding obvious I'm not 
you know, I'm not this sort of, I, mean, I have numerous flaws, my God, lots and lots of flaws, too many to count. But, you know, I thought I'm not this sort of demonic figure that they made out to be. And then suddenly you'd meet people who would talk to me as if they were talking to my, but what they were doing, they were talking to the caricature that they had quite understandably absorbed from the newspaper they read or the media that they digested. And it was fascinating because I suddenly realised there's no point in me talking as me because it wouldn't make sense to them. So I almost had to sort of respond to them in so, the form of the caricature that had been made out for me. It's, it's a very, it's a very so, tricky one. What, so what would you have done? I mean, you say oh, like I, I, would, I should have responded. I should have been much, much more outspoken, much more. I shouldn't have let this crap that, you know, this very early stuff. And they might, you know, every politician goes through this. And I don't want to, don't want to sound it, make it sound like, you know, whingy. But if I did it again, you know, when the early sort of uh, allegations in, in, the, in the coalition, you know, from the left, it was always oh, lost his soul, he's lost his principles, he's a Judas Iscariot, he's just jumped into bed with Cameron, lost all his principles. And from the right, it was, you know, he's, a, you know, he's an unprincipled bird, he's just sort of, you know, get, wangling his way and getting his foot in power, he's mm. got no right to be there. I sh instead of just doing what I did, which was, well, that's obviously ridiculous, I'll just get on with a day job and, and hopefully over time, the truth will out. I should have been so much more. I should have called them out. What just said? What, what you well, mean? Being more honest and yeah, more. Well, and just more much. Human. I just just I mean, just responded much more and just sort of just and hit back a bit harder. I, th I think I was sort of too. I think I was I was a bit naive in that sense. I sort of thought, well, if as long as I do the the job in the boiler room in government, I do my best, then that will kind of come out and all this nonsense from. So it's interesting because it sounds to me as if you say complacence, but that could be defined as arrogance, and you don't seem like a remotely arrogant. No, no. Person. Well, I, well. F firstly, in in the sort of political world, people always say to you, so you you know, press advisors and all these that kind of folk, they always say, oh, don't answer back, don't answer back, because you know, if you upset that ghoulish character Paul Dacre in the Daily Mail, he'll go after you. So you're constantly being told and urged, logically enough. Don't bother with this. And of course, that's partly sensible because you can't spend all your time down in the down in the trenches. I mean, was it Bill Clinton who said if you get into a fight with a pig, you'll get muddy and they enjoy it or something like that, you know? Um, so, so there was that. And there was also just, you know, the number of hours in the day. You can't spend all your time constantly answering back. But my point to you about uh, public persona versus human being, back to your original question, I think I allowed, uh, or I didn't challenge, a kind of bloodless caricature to be placed upon my shoulders, and I should have challenged that. And I, I would certainly urge anyone who's in my situation to do that more forcefully. I think there was, but there was also a narrative which I found very engaging, which may have been quite a minor narrative, that you actually were suffering quite a lot of stress from these accusations because they weren't, you know, and that was seemed yeah. to me to be a good thing because they weren't mass of principle; they were just what you had to do. Yeah. In the situation all, we're in. It's all in the eye of the beholder. It's all in the eye of the beholder. Um, but just back to the human stuff. Can, can yeah, I, no, that's, that's what I want. That's yeah. what I want to so, talk so, about. So I, tell you, I think what I possibly am, I'm possibly less political than more than many politicians rather than more human. I certainly don't want to claim I'm more human. There are lots of politicians I know from other parties who are wonderful human beings. But I am, I, I am for better or for worse, I am generally just not that wildly tribal and partisan, it just, it just, I'm a Lib Dem, I will always be a Lib Dem, I'll be a card-carrying Lib Dem, you know, f forever, but, uh, but, you know, being a Lib Dem is not the be-all and end-all of my life. There are so many more things which are so much more important to me 
And actually, I mean, just to bring it up, bang up to date, this Brexit business, I just find that so much more important than any party affiliation. I mean, just so obviously more important. Because I just kind of think, well, if, I, if you want to have some influence over how your kids, the country that your kids grow up in. So I do, the, the bit where, maybe not more human, but I am probably less party political than many politicians. I do know other po- politicians for whom it's close to a religion. You know, yes. whether they are... You know, I've got some good Labour friends, for instance, good example. I'll leave them nameless just to sort of spare their blushes. But, you know, I have, and these are really decent people, barely a cigarette paper of difference, actually, between my views and their views. What you'd probably call kind of moderate Labour folk. And they're in despair about what's happened to their party. They don't agree with Corbyn and so on and so forth. And you talk to them and I sort of say, well, surely it's time for you to kind of, you know, think of doing something else or break away or join another party, something, because the, the discrepancy between what they feel and what their party now represents is so great. And then it's really interesting, and they say, well, some of them get quite dewy-eyed, and they sort of say, well, my mum was a Labour woman, my dad was down in the pits, he was a Labour man, man, so was my grandfather. It's this kind of... Now, you probably, as a, I don't know what your politics is. I was about to say, as a class, I, I, no, 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 let's not, let's, I don't want to... But, I'm exactly the same as you, I Well, think. okay, but, 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 my, but, but what... I never quite understand that, because I look at them and say, but, you, but the Labour Party is not a church, it's not a sect, or the Conservative Party, the Lib Dems, these are political parties, political parties are, are loose tribes, they have lots of different strands of opinion in them, but it's not the beagle on end all, so I guess it's a slightly different answer to your I, question. I feel less political than many rather than more human than many other politicians. But nevertheless, I think that our serious media, if you like, do, you know, compartmentalise people. Yeah. I mean, you know, this is why oh, yeah, yeah. the Today programme is such a tedious listen, in my opinion, yeah. because, you know, it's not only is it combustive, and I don't know whether it's chicken and egg, but it does force people to toe a party line. Yeah. So no one ever goes, no one ever can say, yeah. Oh, you know what? You've probably got a point, and I'm a little bit ambiguous on that, but... Yes, and if you do, and if you do, and dare I say it, one of the things I tried and failed to do was to try and uh, introduce into the p- political mainstream of this country, through the coalition government, the idea that a compromise is a perfectly grown-up thing to do. But you're quite right. If you have this almost semi-permanent hysteria about political tribalism, actually what happens, happened to me... Uh, is, is actually a compromise is not a, regarded as a compromise, it's, it's regarded as a betrayal and a terrible loss of principle. And I, to this day, and I'll always believe that's nonsense. I actually think to compromise is a, is a sign of strength. As long as you do it in a mature way, it's a sign of strength. It's not a sign of weakness. And yet, our hysterically tri- tribal way of looking at politics describes things which I believe to be strong human virtues, the ability to see, try and understand someone else's point of view, to try and in a grown-up way, try and find some way in which you can, you know, perch on common ground, that, 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 that is regarded as weak. And well, that, that, that is a great, great shame. And by the way, it's not just in our democracy, it's amplified here just because of the way that the kind of Yabu culture of Westminster. But you see it in the States, you see it in other countries. And I think that's, I th- see, I think the kind of Trump tweeting and sort of Farage venom. I think that's weak. I think that's weak and I think it's immature because it's not actually engaging with... It's not engaging with the crooked timber of life. It's kind of... It's just blurting. It's just spasms. It's just emotional spasms. And that... And that yeah, I failed to... I mean, I clearly failed to, 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 to you know, to persuade people of that. Um, well, I think what's interesting here is that 
I agree very much that changing your mind is part of life. I mean, you learn stuff. So, Do it all the time. Now it's become called a U-turn. Yes, yes, exactly. And, and that's an, a bad thing. So, yeah. in fact, in many ways, that entrenches politicians yeah. in views that they yeah. don't necessarily agree with, yeah. presumably. You know, the classic example is this Brexit stuff. By a tiny, tiny margin, the country has decided to go in a particular direction. It is so obvious already that it is not remotely going to shape up to be what those who advocated Brexit claimed or those who voted for Brexit hoped for. In any other walk of life, it said, you know what, we've just, we've just taken a wrong turning here. Let's just pause. Let's just push the pause button and think again. But you can't do that, of course, in this... In well, this why can't you do that? Be- well, look, I think you can, but w- 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 why can't you in the political culture? Well, uh, partly, but exactly the reason you've just described, because changing course in view of changing facts, which to you and I might just seem a normal thing to do. We do it every day of our lives. Mm. John Maynard Keynes famously said, you know, when the facts change, I change my mind. What do you do, sir? So, you know, it's, it's as old as the hills. But uh, in politics, in Westminster politics, it's considered to be a sign of weakness and humiliation and so on. And then, of course, you have in Britain right now, hopefully it'll change over time, but right now you've got some incredibly powerful, wholly unaccountable vested interests, usually, by the way, old men who don't even live or pay taxes, you know, the Barclay brothers, Rupert Murdoch, this, this splenetic character, Paul Dacre, who, who edits the Daily Mail, who will just go ballistic if there's any change, change of course, because they, of course, they don't, sense, they don't give a shit what happens to this country. You know, they, they're all squillionaires, they li- many of them live elsewhere, but they cannot countenance the idea that they would have to admit that what they advocated hasn't worked out right. Uh, so, so Brexit has been driven fundamentally by about four aged well, men. No, there was over seventeen, I mean, well, over 17 okay. million people who voted for it. So, don't get me wrong. It's not. I don't, I don't want to sort of. I don't want to dismiss the fact that, 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 that you know there were more votes for Brexit than, than for the for Remain. But I, I do think we need to be quite clear-eyed about the fact that there are some very powerful vested interests. Funny enough, I was Miriam and I went to listen to Hillary Clinton yesterday. It's really eerie to hear how she speaks about some of the big money vested interests who shovel huge amounts of money into the Republican Party and, and have this very, very kind of anti-state, anti-welfare, anti-regulation, anti-sort of, well, actually anti the ability of the state to function properly kind of ideology. And that's very, very similar to some of these, uh, some of these big hedge fund managers and some of these big uh, proprietors and editors of the right-wing press who, who you know, who, if you, and it's not me just making this up, but I mean, I've written this in my, in my, in my book, um, you could document it, they've said it all publicly, that their, their ideological objective is to turn the United Kingdom into what's loosely called, you know, this Singapore on stilts. It's probably very unfair to Singapore, by the way. Um, but this idea that what they want is this kind of cowboy economy, you know, low welfare, low tax, low regulation, low protection, um, which, of course, they'd never win if they actually put that to the British people, because the British people don't want to see the dismantling of the NHS, and they don't want to see the removal... But they don't of have to put it to the British Exactly. So what they do is they do it by proxy. They use all these, all these convenient fools, these idiotic sort of, you know, Brexit, you know, this cast of opportunists by Farage and Gove and Johnson to do their bidding for them. Because you have to, of course, from their point of view, take the UK out of the European Union if you want to pursue this... This, and of course, equally, they can't believe their luck that Labour, the Labour Party is not challenging them properly. So, I mean, it's a perfect storm in that sense. But where do we, why do we get on to this? No, um, well, I mean, I think, well, I mean, let, let's just talk briefly then about your book. So, How to Stop Brexit. 
and make Britain, make great. Britain great again. Very good. Yes. Don't forget um, the Trumpian. So, so I mean, that, that, that's, um, that's just literally just come out. Yeah, yeah. Just um, come out last week, yeah. And um, talk me through that. that that's... Well, it, it, you know, now I'm not in politics. I'm not in the front line. I'm not standing for election. I'm not in office. I'm completely free to, to just say stuff as I see it. And um, uh, one of the many, many pernicious myths that have taken root in our country is this idea that as a free country, we're no longer entitled to change our mind. And it just, it just enrages me that. You know, we change our mind all the time. You take the wrong turning in a car, you, you change course. I don't know, people finally get married to people who they should, perhaps shouldn't have done. They, if they, they don't compromise, then they're certainly not yeah. going to make <laughs> that work. <laughs> indeed, yeah. indeed, that's what we all, exactly. But at a very primitive democratic level, I just abhor the way in which we, we're, I think, being almost intimidated by some of these vested interests, these old angry men that I just talked about, into, into sort of believing that we're not allowed to revisit a decision, even though that decision itself is not remotely being delivered in the way that we were promised. You know, don't get me wrong, if the Brexiteers succeeded in finding 350 million quid a week for the NHS, giving us a VAT cut, um, having this wonderful, you know, cake and eat it uh, universe in which you get exactly the same benefits out of the EU as you get in it and all that kind of guff, then probably people like me would have to admit, oh well, you know, I don't, don't think it's great, but fair enough, they've, they've delivered what they've said to the British people. But given that they clearly are not going to deliver, by the way, not not just not some of those commitments, but not a single one of them, I just think, it's regardless of whether you are a Remain voter or a Brexiteer, or whether you frankly give a shit at all about this whole topic, surely in a mature democracy, you can't take such a whacking great big decision on the basis basically of lies, which then transpire not to be true, and then be told, and you're not allowed to think again. I completely agree, and, and you know, we're, we're no doubt have similar thought patterns, but in many ways what you've just described two or three minutes ago is a situation in which even if you want to change, you can't, because you're going to be completely massacred ah, by these... Right, well that's, that, that, that's where you need courage. That's exactly right. So, so given that you'll get all this incoming fire from, from you know, from the... Uh, from these vested interests in the right-wing press and so on. Uh, you need courage, and, I, and, and my book is actually written very, very specifically uh, about the need to encourage MPs to have the courage of their convictions in almost exactly a year's time, because Theresa May said that she's gonna give MPs a chance to vote on whatever deal she cobbles, you know, she and David Davis cobbled together with um, Michel Barnier in, I think they've said, or it's assumed, October of 2018. So we've got a year. And I just think it's very, very important that anyone who cares about this, and I've described this in the book, gets involved in their local parties, gets involved with their local MPs, gets involved particularly with the Labour and the Conservative parties, if they're that way inclined anyway, to persuade Conservative Labour MPs at that, you know, crunch, crunch vote, whenever it happens in October of next year, just for once to pluck up the courage. And, you know, there is safety in numbers. The more of them do it, the more courageous they'll all feel. Um, to put country before party, because there is a there is an inbuilt majority in the House of Commons that knows that the way we're going about this is is bad for their constituents. So, so that you know that's my now. Then of course all th you know all sorts of things might unravel in one way or the other. But but you've it got to start with MPs, dare I say, in a rather old-fashioned way, just doing their job. Their job is to represent their interests of the of their constituents. So you you said that you have empathy or sympathy with or, or you understand the you know the forty. The 
it's 52% that voted pro-Brexit. Yeah. Do, do you get a sense that a lot of those would, would vote against it if we had that situation again, if we had the opportunity? Um, gosh, I, I don't know. I mean, all my political predictions in recent years have been wrong. So this Everyone's have. Yeah. I mean, f- first thing to, 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 to note is, of course, you know, the, the, that vote and the subsequent general election did show this massive generational divide. And, and I really do think... I mean, on a, again, a very kind of first principle basis, I just think taking a massive decision about your country's future against the explicit stated wishes of what young people want, who are the only people around who are going to live with the consequences of that decision, I mean, I, I just think that's just so fundamentally wrong, it's just ethically wrong to tell youngsters, thou shalt not have the future, which they voted for in huge numbers. I mean, this, this stereotype that youngsters didn't vote is not true. Over 60% of 18 to 24 year olds voted and they, 70% of them voted to stay. That's the first thing. And I would have thought that voice, that youthful voice would become even more pronounced and would turn out in even larger, num- even larger numbers in the next um, vote. Oh, I think- and then the, the other thing which I personally think would swing it is because we've now had enough time to test all the claims slapped on the you know, side of a red bus and all the rest of it against reality. So it's much, e- you know, before the, these jokers could just come up with utopian bollocks and just mm. say, you're going to get that, yeah, you're going to get that. You, oh, yeah, you want that? You want free sweets on Tuesday? Yeah, you want another bank holiday? You want a VAT cut? You want, you know, complete control of your fisheries? You want, oh, absolutely, no, don't worry. And there'll be no downside to it at all. I mean, it was such utopian drivel. Now, at least... People like me would be able to say, look, you don't need any more evidence that it's just not true. And then hopefully, I think you'd have quite a lot of people saying, do you know what? If the young people don't want this and we were sold, you know, we were sold Brexit in the first place on a false prospectus. You have to believe in the common sense of the British people that on that, you know, in that situation, they'd say, do you know what? I may not like or even love the European Union because it is a deeply imperfect organisation, blah, blah, blah. But nonetheless, it's better to stay in. It's really interesting that one of the good things, and not a lot of good things, have come out of Brexit and Trump. But one of them is that it seems to me that my children yeah. are engaged in politics in a way they simply wouldn't have been. Yeah. I mean, when Trump is that, is that his, right? Is your kids? yes? When he did his inauguration speech to children, two of them were on the train and they watched it. Yeah. Now the idea of um, yeah. of children, my children, watching that yeah. five years ago. I mean, do you find that with yours? I do. I do. I mean, my poor kids, of course, <laughs> parents who. Constantly, sort of, you know, to talk about politics, probably too much than we should at home. Well, certainly about Brexit. It was about politics, actually. We didn't, even when I was in government, I didn't. I hope I didn't bring politics too much, sort of, into the conversation around the kitchen table. But Brexit, Miriam and I talk about it a lot because we're quite we're quite steamed up about it. So my poor kids are subject to quite a lot of that. Um, but I do notice that both the as you say, the Trump and Brexit. I don't know. It may, it may be a bit like Iraq in the past. The Iraq also, war. I think. Do you think? Yeah. I do, yes. Yeah. And, um, that was distant. Yeah, that's interesting. It's interesting. I know I, I... I mean, it has to be a good thing. It has to be a good thing that the basic signal that has always been sent to politicians, subliminally perhaps, that basically older voters vote more than younger voters, therefore, you know, cater to them first, is now increasingly being challenged. And I think it's a really good thing that... You know, we're sitting here today on a Monday morning in London in the run-up to the budget and the papers this morning are full of how Philip Hammond wants to try and do something for, you know, younger kids getting their feet on the, on the property ladder. I mean, he'll no doubt come up with some sort of damp squib. But what I, what I mean is that the kind of the dilemma of intergenerational unfairness, particularly when it comes to housing in this country, 
is now a big, big issue in a way that it wasn't even a few years ago. And I, that has to be a good thing. Yes. It'll, take, it'll, take, it'll take frustratingly long for it to feed through, as it always does. But I basically think the, 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 there's, a, there's a kind of, there's a real sea change now that, that you, you know, I think people realise that you, you, you cannot carry on um, you cannot care on shortchanging youngsters. And the Brexit vote in many ways was just the kind of, it was in many ways the catalyst to really bring that to people's attention. I've never understood this, and, and I don't understand the machinations of politics, but why was it the Scottish referendum was open to younger people than the Well, very good question. Brexit? Because the Scottish government, rightly in my view, uh, insisted they wanted that in the leg- legislation. And we at the time, I was in government at the time, I think rightly, and I think history has vindicated us, we, oh, definitely. we decided that we weren't going to stand in the way of a legally properly administered referendum, and it wasn't for us to say to the you know, Scottish, uh, even though we had to pass legislation in Westminster as a coalition government, we, we took a very collaborative approach how to do that. Um, what happened with the pa- passing the legislation about the European referendum was, um, unfortunately, two things. Firstly, the nutters on the Brexit backbenches realised that the more you had young people, people voting, uh, the, the more that might tilt the balance in favour of Remain. And so they were very, very vociferous. And you had Cameron, who, A, of course, wanted to minimise the number of fights he was picking with them. But crucially, he just thought it was going to be won. He just... Mm. And, and to, to be fair to him... Well, not to be fair to him. I mean, to, 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 to sort of condemn everyone, including myself when I was a part, in Parliament at the time, when the legislation was passed for the referendum... I think there was an unspoken assumption that Remain was going to win pretty easily. And for that reason, it wasn't nearly... I mean, there were some brave souls in the House of Lords and elsewhere who pushed for 16 and 17-year-olds to vote, and certainly my, the Lib Dems did. Um, but, you know, that the other thing that a lot of people abroad always ask me, they say, well, why on earth did you not have a constitutional minimum requirement of... Yes. Because, you know, most other mature uh, democracies, you can't just one rainy Thursday, just suddenly change everything on a wafer-thin vote. You have to have a minimum turnout or a minimum vote in favour of something. And in fact, we did that in the 1970s in, the, in, the, in a vote in Scotland and Wales. Uh, we had in, in British legislation then a requirement of, you ha- f- f- to make this change, at that time I think it was about giving more powers to the devolved nations, you had to have, I think, 60% voting right. for the proposition. which is quite standard elsewhere. Oh, yeah, completely standard, completely yeah. standard. Because it's only in our barking system where, A, if, if prime ministers have a majority in Westminster, they can kind of do what they like without the say-so of anybody else. And secondly, we don't have a written constitution, so you can just make stuff up. But for most other, in most other democracies, it is so peculiar that this could have been done in such a capricious and flippant way. I think that's what, that's what I think shocks a lot of... Complacent. Yeah, complacent and flippant, just sort of, what, you just randomly did this? It was like sort of... It's all, I mean, it, it's, it's, it's all incredibly interesting, and I think just sort of spooling back a bit, I mean, presumably one of the reasons that you feel so passionate about it is that you're, you've got an, a mixed European heritage. Yeah, yeah. You know, I'm, a, con- Europe, I'm a, a wife, a Spanish wife. Yeah. Um, do you, how, how much do you think... So you've got some Dutch in your... My mum is Dutch. I'm, yeah, so I'm very Dutch. I'm, I'm half Dutch. I'm, I'm married to a half Dutch oh, woman. Right. Well, you know... They're, and they're, I mean, how much do you think that's informed? Hugely. No, no, I'm not... Look, I, I think everybody is a, a creature and a product of their... You know, I hear all you're saying about Brexit. But yeah. 
you know, it's very, it's very easy for you. I mean, you, yeah. you speak all these five yeah, yeah. different languages. You, you know, you've got a Spanish wife, yeah, yeah. Dutch mum. You know, you see all of yeah. Europe. I so, mean, if you're, if you're slightly less yeah. connected or more disenfranchised or immensely more disenfranchised, that, that vote you can understand as well. I've got absolutely nothing to lose, so why wouldn't I? Yeah, to, to, I totally get that. Um, but the proof is in the eating of the pudding. I mean, just to be very, very concrete about it, you know, to sort of go, to go swing from sort of highfalutin stuff about, you know, my heritage through to, as you say, kind of bread and butter life. Uh, in 2016, for the first time in years since the financial crisis, finally, the increase in people's wages started to increase faster than the, the increase of prices in the shops, which is one of the most, and it's one of the most unforgiving things if you feel constantly that your increase in your wages does not keep up with increase in, in prices in the shops. And this has been going on for eight long, remorseless years since the financial crisis. Finally, there was light at the end of the tunnel. Finally, there was breathing space. Finally, millions of low-income, really hard-working families were finding that they were not just running to stand still or running to mm. go backwards. They were running, working hard, and they were getting something back for it. Guess what the Brexit referendum did? It stopped that dead in its tracks because the plummeting pound means that prices are going up and once again there's a real-term squeeze on people's incomes. This is real stuff. And that is why I don't believe for one moment the kind of allegation that if you're in favour of staying in the European Union it's some sort of namby-pamby, metrosexual... Uh, okay, very you know, interesting. Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, it but... is about people's everyday well-being and it is being damaged right now. And, it's the, and why this is so cruel and dishonest is that, the, is that the very people who the populists and the Brexiteers claim they speak for are the first to be hurt. It's not people like me, you're quite right. It's not people like, dare I say, you or I. Mm. It's, it's millions of people who are now suddenly finding that their, their money goes much less far than it, than it did before the referendum. And, and, and how is it that a referendum can explain to people that that genuinely is the reason? Because I think, you know, people are fundamentally suspicious of, of all this. They, and they will still think, oh yeah, but it'll be all right in the long term. We've always been, we've always done things well in this country, or we always win in the end. I think, well, listen, I, I don't want to sound apocalyptic about this because no doubt we can try and muddle along. It, it, but, but I don't think muddling along should be good enough for an amazing country such as ours. And my worry is that those people, the sort of Jacob Rees-Mogg view that sort of says, oh, no, it's marvellous. We, you know, we ran the world once. We, you know, marvellous empire. Everyone speaks English. Uh, um, mother of all parliament. Harumph, harumph, harumph. Their view, this is why I deliberately said in my front page of my book, it's how to stop Brexit and make Britain great again, because their description of greatness is actually just nostalgia. That's what they're, they're basically driven by this view that we can turn the clock back to some kind of new imperial, great, you know, the great sort of British reach across the world. We're not like that anymore. We're a great country. But for heaven's sake, they've got to smell the coffee and look well, around. The world isn't like that either. The world's not like that. I mean, you know, if you speak to the Chinese or the Indians, I've spoken to a few sort of Chinese and Indian decision makers. You know, they're looking at this from sort of 30,000 feet and they think, what on earth is the UK doing? Sort of retreating to a little cul-de-sac of its own in its own, in its own hemisphere. They just don't get that. You know, these people... These new powers, whether it's Brazil or China or India, and, and, and or, you know, and obviously if you look at it from the other side of the Atlantic, we're a, we're a remarkable country with a remarkable history, with remarkable gifts and so on. 
but we're a, you know, we're a, we're a middling global power off the northwest coast of the European mainland. And so I just worry so much that the utopianism is a utopianism based on nostalgia. And I just don't think trying to hanker for the past in life is a great guide to shape your future. No, no, no. I mean, I, I obviously... Um, actually, funny enough, I'm, I'm drawn here to... Your Desert Island Discs book was The Leopard, right? Yes. Which is yes. one of my favourite books. Oh. Now, that says to stay the same, yeah. everything must change at the beginning, or, yeah. or I paraphrase, but yeah. it does say yeah, that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that kind of, you know... That, yeah, that's... And, and exactly. Well, it's funny, I've never made that connection before. I mean, it, the, its depiction of... The, the loss of, you know, one order while another one comes in. And, and of course, the, in a sense, in, in the main protagonist, the kind of nobility with which he kind of both recognises he needs to change but finds that he can't. That's so human. We're all like Absolutely. that. Absolutely. I mean, I'm 50. The older you get, you kind of slightly get more set in your way, all that kind of stuff. But actually what that book shows is you, you can't stop time. No, you, and you have to manage change you in have the to right manage way. It. You have to manage it. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's... I love the book, but but I think that quote at the beginning is yeah. absolutely bang on yeah. as well. So you seem like, you know, you're really relishing this role as a commentator on the outside. I mean, do you want... Oh, I'd much rather be Prime Minister, but I just don't... Right, okay. I, just don't, I think I've missed my chance. But, but do you think if you were... <laughs> well, you've kind of done it, <laughs> well, almost. Um, do you think if you were in... Do you think if you were in um, politics, you would still... You, you would be as brave and outspoken as yes, you are now. Yes, yes, yes. No, I think I yeah. would. I think I would. I think one of the great benefits, uh, if, you, if you've sort of, in a sense, gone as far as you think you're likely to get in politics, uh, uh, if you're still knocking around, either in Parliament or outside Parliament, is in a sense, you're not going to lose anymore. Yeah. And, and, no, no, and to be so fair... Do you feel at ease with that, do you? Know? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, no, I mean, one of the... One of the... I mean, I'm not a great... I don't particularly like sort of hanging out in the House of Commons, never did. I was never much of a Commons man in the 12 years I was an MP. And, I, and the, all the sort of pomp and ceremony and the sort of oak panelled rooms and the leather benches, it gets get some people wildly excited and they think it's the best thing ever. I, I, I've, you lot, went into that? No, it left me pretty cold, really. Um, um, but I discovered in this little interregnum parliament in which I was still an MP, so after I left government in 2015, before I lost my seat in 2017, I actually discovered in debates in the chamber, other than myself and Ken Clark and a very few other uh, figures, there just weren't very many people just getting up and just in a sense very plainly saying it like they saw it. There was so much equivocation and positioning. All the stuff we talked about. Yeah. yeah. And so, and funny enough, that's one of the reasons, perhaps wrongly, perhaps I shouldn't have done so, I decided to stand again, was because I thought, oh, well, maybe there is a role for me just to... Um, you know, if, if other people are still trying to find their way in this, on this issue and I, and I, in a sense, have got the luck and the freedom to kind of just blurt out what I think, maybe there's a, a role there to try and create the space for others. But, um, but anyway... We'll maybe you can be... do more from the outside. Because, I think you can you know, do a lot. People I think... want to hear you, they want to talk to you and you can really shout about what you believe I think in. you can do a lot. And I've, we're sitting here in, a, in an office in, in, in Southwark. I've set up a little think tank called Open Reason. And, um, you know, we do great work, I think, on not only on Brexit, but on education. We're just about to do a project on artificial intelligence and some of the kind of ethical and policy implications of that impending revolution. It's really, I mean, I'm not going to pretend for one moment that the stuff that I pronounce on in any way sort of changes things as materially as making a decision in government and getting things, you know, changed there and then. Of course not. But, but um, you know, I kind of think if you can sort of 
contribute to the kind of general environment in which things are being debated. That that seems to be a worthwhile thing to do. You, might, you might talk to more people as a non-politician than a politician. Well, you don't know, but you might. Back, back to your first question. The, 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 the thing I find very striking, particularly, you know, uh, no doubt deservedly as, as a politician who, um, you know, attracted a fair amount of opprobrium when I was in office, it's just really interesting how people are appear to be more prepared to listen to you when you're no longer capable of taking decisions, no longer in a position to take decisions when they weren't very keen to listen to you when you were in a position. Well, maybe, now, now, you might, in a sense, I sometimes think, well, it's not slightly the wrong way around, but that just seems to be the way things are. Nick, maybe you're a bit more open. Yes. I mean, you know, yes. you're yeah, less yeah, yeah. busy. You're, oh, of course. You know. Oh, gosh, yes, you're, you're, the clutter, the clutter in your brain, the kind of static sort of constant noise in your, in your brain when you're leading these mad 16-hour, you know, working days and seven days a week, 360, absolutely. I have no idea how someone deals with that. I mean, uh, it must almost be beyond humanly possible. Well, uh, I'll tell you a little interesting thing. Um, Probably just leave him nameless, but there aren't that many candidates to pick from. An ex-Prime Minister said to me, who I saw shortly after I left office, he said to me, Nick, take your time. He said, it'll take you at least a couple of years to catch your breath and to recover from from the intensity of what you've done. And I remember thinking at the time, I thought, oh, can't be. And I'm not pretending it's exactly two years, but you, you do realise with hindsight that if you are in a, if you're working in a, in almost sort of hysterically high pressure environment all the time, um, uh, it, it, yeah, you, 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 do need a, you do need time afterwards to kind of find your feet again. I mean, little things, I'll give you a little example. Um, after I left office in 2015, and the 2015 defeat, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to pretend otherwise. That was, you know, that was a heavy defeat. It really, you know, it felt like a, you know, a massive collapse in the Lib Dem vote. And I felt incredibly responsible for it. Indeed, I was. And I felt, oh my gosh, I've worked my guts out for five years, and you know, and this is all in a sense we've got to show for it. So I, I, I'm not going to pretend to you I didn't, you know, that was not easy. Whereas actually, in 2017, losing the seat was a bit, was a bit more random, really. I could take that more in my stride. But what I realised, and, and I only realised it with hindsight, was I started listening straight after that election to huge amounts of music. I listened to music, I mean, literally hours, hours, and I was just devouring it. And I realised I'd stopped listening to music. I mean, properly listening. You know, properly oh, listening. Absorbing completely. it right in your soul, right? In your heart. Side, I've been through this myself. Yeah. And it was, I was like a pot plant that had been starved of water. I was just drinking the... And it was, it was literally as if various sort of synapses in my brain had, had... I had to sort of close them to sort of make sure that I clipped on the armour every morning and I was tough and I never... And it was really fascinating to see how almost unconsciously or spontaneously I just sort of opened up bits of my internal system that I had to close down, of emotion and of vulnerability and feeling and all that kind of stuff. It was wonderful, it was wonderful. I felt all nourished again. So, so I feel very nourished again. Yes. But I just don't think you can expect anyone in the position I was, or indeed the position that people who are in government now, to have those open synapses, those open, because you can't, you just cannot survive the battle every day if you're... No, I mean, I, I, I look at, 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 you know, prime ministers and I, and I just think I have no, you know, my life is busy enough. Yeah. I, I have no idea how you cope with it. Well, you just do. You would. Everyone does. I mean, yes. everyone finds different tonics. For me at the time, I remember thinking, I remember actually writing out and saying, oh, bugger. I, I wish the kind of cookie had crumbled otherwise and my kids had been older when, because I actually love being with my kids. I just, just 
I think being with small children is one of the greatest pleasures in, you know, in, obviously in in, uh, in our existence. And I just I felt such sort of, uh, you know, I was really kind of quite conflicted about. Oh my gosh, I'm now going to be so busy when I want to be with my kids. Actually, as it turned out, a I was quite disciplined at making sure I spent time with the kids. Uh, secondly, we stayed in our own home, which was a wonderful tonic. So I wasn't in the madhouse, you know, of, of Downing Street all the time, 24 hours a day. And actually now with hindsight, I realised, thank God my kids were small. and They didn't read all the stuff about right. it. Right, that's imagine. interesting. That's and interesting. so for me, my home, being with Miriam, being with the kids, just it was a massive, massive sort of counterbalance to that. But did life. you have a release? I mean, did you exercise or anything? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But in a sort of rather kind of mechanical way, you know, I sort of bought a, a rowing machine and not, not the kind of exercise I like, which is sort of tennis and... Being outside. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it was kind of slightly sort of typical... Compressed. 11 minutes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yes, yeah. yeah, 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 exactly. So now, thankfully, I, I now bicycle and I'm... And you've given up smoking. Which I, I, is, I mean, I, whilst I, no one should smoke, of course, that's a bit of a disappointment to me <laughs> because we, talk, we started off talking about humour, uh, so I always rather like the fact that you smoke. But I just, uh, I had to stop because... No, no, I mean, I... I, I, I was doing, I've been smoking non on and off. I had been smoking and I it became quite alarmed when I realised it for just over 30 years as for my late teens, never heavily, by the way, never heavily. And when I was in government, I, I, I found it a massively important thing to be able to smoke in the back garden. Yes. With no one there, keep the phone inside. And it was literally like five minutes of... Which just, is actually just what like a load a, of people use it for yeah, in whatever exactly, level. Exactly. Out, out of the office. For time. It's more yeah. marking time, isn't it? You're allowed cigarette breaks, but not other breaks. Listen, just yep. to finish up talking, and I'm glad that you mentioned the music, because I've actually bought... Do you have a CD player? Or yes, I do. To, I bought you a couple of CDs. Oh, thank you. So I, you may well have listened to A Moonshape Pool, which is the latest Radiohead no, one, and I know I that you um, played them on your Deadline Disc. That's a phenomenal is album. It? Phenomenal. Fantastic. It's quite bleak. And do you know The National? No. Referred to as the American Radiohead. Now that is not. That's the most recent one. That isn't necessarily their best album, but Thank they're you. an extraordinary band. Thank you so much. And I, well, I mean, music is my number one interest. Oh, I, brilliant. Um, well, I am so much more. I'm so much less cultivated than you. So I, I now rely on Shazam. When I, okay. what was I, I was watching. Um, Big Little Lies the other day. Oh, yes. And I just loved the, the music, so I just Shazam it and then end up sticking well, it on my Spotify and then listening to it. I mean, all that. of those series have amazing music selections. Whoever ah. does that job is bloody good. Great series. But those are, those are, those are extremely... Thank you so much. Um, those are extremely melancholy records. All right. Um, but okay, quite in my melancholy moments. <laughs> Thank you, Thanks Charlie. so much, Nick. Well, I hope that you enjoyed that interview. As you know, at the end there, I gave Nick a couple of CDs. Um, I was listening to his Desert Island Discs a few days ago, which he did, I think, in 2012, and he mentioned his CD collection. And on that, he played a wide selection of music, inevitably, as well as tracks by Radiohead and Prince. And I, I got the impression that he was a real music lover. It isn't either necessary or always the case with Desert Island Discs that people love music, but I got the sense that Nick did. And by chance there, of course, he mentioned how much music had begun to mean to him again when the stress and the noise of Downing Street had died down. So I gave him a moon-shaped pool by Radiohead and the most recent album by The National. I thought that they'd be a good fit. They're both pretty melancholy, but um, I think they're both absolutely wonderful albums. Anyway, thank you very much, Nick, indeed, for doing that. I would urge you to read his book if you're in any way interested, How to Stop Brexit and make Britain great again. 
but uh, you will no doubt have made up your own mind. I think he speaks an enormous amount of sense. Anyway, so there you have it. Thank you to you for listening very much. Thanks again to Nick for speaking to me. And thanks to my friend, Jim Friend, for editing this. Okay, see you soon. Bye. Bye.